So what a smart city um, at that kind of very surface level is um, portraying to do is drive efficiency gains and the kinds of optimization, automation of those kinds of services. But that's really just a starting point. So what we are trying to do is understand what else is there to that equation of um, smart cities that goes beyond just this picture of um, you're all taken care of by robots, by algorithms, and by big data. So in a nutshell, the main problem that I face, and I come from this kind of science and, and software engineering background, is this. If there's a traffic jam, well, you know, there's probably some engineer that comes up with this idea that there's a technical fix. The technical fix might be that there is cars, or even if you've seen there's other pictures of buses that can drive over a traffic jam. Now, how great is that? We all love that? Great idea? Maybe not? Right. So we are trying to kind of balance that with some more input from the social sciences and humanities. Um, and what I'm trying to develop today is these, um, these four, and I'm going to expand it to five levels of um, a relationship between cities and people. On a very basic level, at kind of city 1.0 level, you have the uh, local government, as I said, the roads, rates, and rubbish. They're administering um, what is actually genuinely important. We do have to have that kind of entity that looks after these kinds of services that apply to the entire city, whether this is um, transport, whether this is waste management, whether this is um, crime, whether this is rates and taxation. And in a very basic level, the people that live there are just residents. Now, what has happened now is that a number of um, industries, software vendors, and accounting firms came into this market out of the um, market um, where they've previously been, and that continues to be a cash cow for them, which is where they drive um, the bottom line of corporations. And they said, well, we can do the same thing with cities. So they are now going in and out of um, local governments and city administrators saying, well, we can help you. Because all you need to do is think of your city as a corporation. And so once you do that, the city becomes a service provider, and the people are just the consumers of those services. So then um, cities start to buy these kinds of products, these kinds of services, and they install the infrastructure, the technical infrastructure, to drive those efficiencies. What we are trying to do is move further up that chain because a city isn't a corporation and a city is also not a computer. It's far more than that. In fact, cities thrive on diversity and they offer diversity in order for people to come together to, to gel, to have new ideas uh, and to have shared encounters. And so if we continue this unchecked, then there is a particular risk that people get polarized, that the actual infrastructure that is put in place puts people into certain sections of the city, either physically or um, virtually, and you don't actually have these shared encounters anymore. So what we are trying to do is for city governments to embrace this role of facilitator and for the people living in cities to become participants. But even that isn't yet um, the pinnacle of what we are trying to achieve. That is just the next step. And a lot of cities kind of say, well, but we're already doing this. We've already asked people what you want to see about the government redevelopment precinct. What you want to see us do about traffic congestion, another laneway, another tunnel, another bridge. What color do you want the bridge to be? Light beige, dark beige? We've asked you. <laughs> 
Right, so that level of participation is often criticized, even by the people applying it in urban planning. They say, oh, there are statutory requirements for us to ask citizens, but sometimes it's not as genuine, and sometimes the actual authority and the responsibility that has been um, applied is quite limited, right? So it is um, limited with regards to time. The community consultation kicks in on a certain day, and then it stops on a certain day, and it's a requirement for the developer to submit their development application. And if there isn't this genuine drive to translate community consultation into genuine engagement, then the actual merits of that process are quite limited. However, on this, at the same time, what we are doing is looking at other kinds of examples and uh, other kinds of um, projects that are going on in the city. And graffiti is an interesting one. I don't know if those in Brisbane might have seen some interesting artworks um, pop up in, in New Farm recently. But also in other parts of, um, of Australia and other parts of the world, graffiti is contentious because on the one hand you have cities such as Brisbane where um, previous and current city governments would try and tag them back and criminalize them and say, well, this is vandalism. On the other hand, you have parts of, say, um, city of Melbourne and Melbourne tourism that are embracing graffiti as part of what tourists and maybe even um, locals expect. They expect a laneway to have a certain kind of um, place-making kind of flair, a certain kind of atmosphere. And graffiti is part, the artwork, the street art that you might see in laneways in Melbourne is part of that. So graffiti artists are sometimes recruited and commissioned by the city in order to actually come in as street artists and engage in place-making kinds of efforts. So I got a couple of pictures of similar kinds of examples. And in the interest of time, I'm going um, through them quite quickly. This one here is uh, parkour. Has anyone even participated or knows about parkour? So those guys, they don't see the city as just to, you know, to live, to work, to consume. The city is their gym. Um, if you see this fire um, escape, you actually think of it as an obstacle parkour. And the, the goal is to jump down there without breaking your neck. And it's <laughs> quite impressive, as you can see. Now, what is interesting from our research point of view is the way that a city is then seen as something completely different. This fire escape isn't a fire escape for them at all. The similar way how a graffiti artist might look at an empty wall more as a canvas, a canvas that is just you know, yelling out to them to do something with. Um, this picture here shows um, Salzburg, which is a city in Austria. And around September, there is um, a day, um, not just in Austria, but around the world. In fact, in Brisbane, it's been taking place as well. I see someone nodding. Um, which is called parking day. And people start feeding the parking meters, and that means that parking lot is theirs to do what they want. And in most cases, people park their car there, but on that day, they do something else. They turn it into a park in order to demonstrate that citizens can recoup and reclaim public space in order to demonstrate what it could look like if this is actually happening um, at scale. And so on the 16th, I think this was the 16th of uh, September, you can see this was Friday before, Saturday 9 o'clock, um, Saturday 1 o'clock, um, people all come out, they put up, put up deck chairs and astroturf and they serve cocktails and they actually turn this into a street fest. And this happens around the world in order to demonstrate how people are co-creating and participating in place-making of cities. I did one up on Okay. I did one uh, space in King Street, Newtown. Have you ever had types of occupations like this turn into permanent fixtures? Well, um, the interesting part of this is that um, 
progressive cities are now looking at these examples and seeing the effect of, um, of the traffic being slowed down, less accidents, the retailers around there get more foot traffic. There's actually a whole bunch of benefits. And so progressive cities have actually now embraced this and said, well, we actually look at um, parklets, which is uh, architectural features that fit into these um, parking bays um, as ways to um, slow down the traffic, to go about placemaking, and also um, enable um, people to, to part uh, participate in the urban design of their, of their neighborhood. So yes, definitely. Um, this one here is yarn bombing, uh, where people go out, they um, take measurements of urban street furniture and assets, they go and knit um, to those specifications, they come back, and it's, it's kind of a form of graffiti, but it's not kind of considered vi um, um, violence or um, um, uh, destructive, because, in fact, it's just wrapping up, you know, whatever asset you have in yarn. And then in these kind of large-scale examples, it even turns into street festivals as well. This one is the Dineon Blanc. This one is taken in Munich, where people occupy um, quite busy intersections, and they come out all dressed in white at the same time to have an alfresco dining experience. Um, again, reclaiming the, the public space. Seat bombing, I think, is really interesting as well. As um, part of gentrification, developers are buying empty lots in order to develop new um, high-rises. But during global financial crisis, a lot of that process will slow down. And these um, development fences um, came up, and nothing happened. So people started to make these seed bombs, which have um, fertile seeds on the inside and soil on the outside. And so they throw them over the development fences, wait until it rains, and then um, the seeds start to germinate and start to grow. So it's a form of participatory urban agriculture. <laughs> so really, um, from that picture that I had before, that level of city 4.0 is where a city becomes more progressive and maybe risk-taking in their approach and sees itself more as a collaborator with the citizenry, where the citizens become co-creators of urban design. So this is kind of the basis um, of uh, my argument, but at the same time, it's not perfect yet either. And so the point I wanted to make today um, and leave um, in order to have some discussion maybe around it is that of urban sprawl. So we still have in that table a problem. And the problem is that in those different steps, humans, people are the centerpiece. And usually if the human um, element is in the center unchecked, we end up with something like this. We end up with urban sprawl. We've heard um, yesterday about population growth. People need to live somewhere. Um, and if that doesn't um, happen in a sustainable fashion, we not only get these kinds of um, extremes of city development, we also get other problems. Now, Michelle mentioned wombats a couple of times, and I'm a big fan of wombats as well. So I'll, I'll use this wombat example as, uh, as a way to illustrate what's going on. Um, so this one here is walnut. Walnut is an orphan. Um, walnut lived in the um, Sleepy Borrows Wombat Sanctuary just outside Canberra. So she's sitting there on my, on my shoulder. But a lot of wombats face this right now, which is sarcoptic mange. It's a mite that crawls under their skin and it eats them alive. It's the most um, excruciating death. There is a biologist at the University of Tasmania that has um, just been on ABC 730 report, I think last week. Has anyone seen that about some of the advances in the research? Um, he said that he hasn't seen any other animal that faces this very slow um, death. It's the slowest and most excruciating 
um, death, and it's faced by one of our iconic um, Australian um, mammals. Now, what has that to do with cities? Well, there's another piece of research done by the University of Western Sydney where they are mapping where these cases occur. And the data has also been researched in collaboration with scientists from CSIRO. And there is actually now um, the hypothesis that there's a correlation to urban sprawl. So if you have wombat populations outside these urban centers, right? Imagine you are all wombats. And I'm a um, white settler coming in here. I'm developing my city, and my city is sprawling. And I'm building a highway right through here. That means you're going to get um, run over by cars if you want to see your mates over there. And if you want to see your family over there, you're also going to get run over. The result is that the, um, the DNA richness and the quality of the DNA of those local wombat populations um, gets weaker and weaker. And so with, um, what these researchers found, it's not my area, but I find it interesting for, um, with regards to the impacts of um, urban development, is that the resilience for, for those wombat populations to cope with psychoptic mange declines. So to such an extent that some local um, populations uh, that they've researched in Tasmania, they become locally extinct. The eradication was up to 95%. There's only like a couple of them left in certain parks because um, the local population uh, is on that kind of level of decline. Now, in terms of um, the impact of smart cities, we know that the kinds of infrastructure that we, we put into cities, um, it's run by data centers. When we talk about this data going into the cloud, well, it doesn't actually exist in the cloud. It exists in there, which is data centers. These data centers um, produce um, a lot of the um, transactions and the um, interactions that we are um, using for data analytics, but they also consume 3% of humanity's energy needs. That's including anything else that humanity does. Data centers right now are already at 3%, and that, that rate is, is increasing. Now, in terms of um, what cities are doing, they say, oh, but we can drive efficiency gains. We can have smart streetlights. We can have better, more efficient um, transport. We can have these little guys in your household which are energy monitors so that you can see what's happening in your household um, and you can save electricity. But the problem is that this postulate is never considered. This, this Kazum Brooks postulate says that the energy efficiency improvements that on the broadest considerations are economically justified at the micro level, they lead to higher levels of energy consumption at the macro level. So if we drive just efficiencies, we won't actually tackle climate change at all. And so that is also a problem for regards to people saying, well, solar panels, they are the answer, surely. If everyone would get um, solar panels, we still run into trouble um, for a whole bunch of different reasons. One is the efficiency problem, but the other one is also what um, Ozzy Zayner, the author of Green Illusions, has called, um, we don't have an energy crisis, we have a consumption crisis. Because the production of the solar panels requires rare earth um, minerals. It requires fossil fuels and the logistics because they're usually produced in China at a um, low price in order to be then distributed across the world. And they don't last forever, so they need to be replaced every couple of years. Um, I got some footage here, but in the interest of time, I'm going to um, skip over some of this. Um, because there's also the cradle-to-grave um, problem of the installations, of the sensors, the IoT, the mobile devices. 
this guy in, um, in the Congo is uh, mining for cobalt, and cobalt is probably in everyone's pocket right now. So if you have a phone, there's a little bit of cobalt in there in the lithium-ion battery. If you have an electric car, you're actually sitting on quite a substantial amount of cobalt. Cobalt is mined in an unregulated manner in the Congo in these kinds of fashions where these guys dig down into the ground and try and get it out. Um, this is done uh, by journalists of the Washington Post. So again, in terms of um, smart cities, we don't necessarily consider the cradle-to-cradle -cradle, um, effects that we should be considering, including waste, um, and that ends up outside Australia in places like China or in places like Accra. This piece here, again, I won't um, show you the video, but if you are interested, um, Al Jazeera did another investigative journalism piece that talks about the um, e-waste republic. And they have a range of these videos about what ends up to your phone and to your computers. So I'll leave you with um, this last piece to consider, which is that um, having people here at the epicenter of um, collaboration and co-creation, um, we believe now isn't good enough. We have to go one step further, which is to um, arrive at this idea of City 5.0, which is where we actually try and work towards cohabitation, where we live um, together with the rest of um, the urban ecosystem as well as the ecosystem in general between um, urban rural areas. And I think the next talk might actually pick, pick up on some of these, these ideas. Um, and just to illustrate what that might look like, my um, colleague Natalie Jeremijenko, she's originally from Brisbane, but she's now a um, scientist as well as artist at uh, New York University. She's been doing these um, artistic scientific um, projects. This one here is the butterfly um, bridge, which I like very much. You've seen these animal bridges maybe outside cities. She's trying to translate that idea for cities. So the butterfly bridge is connecting um, these two different parks. There is usually a road where the butterflies would be smashed on the screen, but she plants um, flowers that attract butterflies at a higher altitude, and the idea is that butterflies would be able to connect between these two areas. Similar to what I mentioned about the one that's being separated, it's actually a design consideration um, to, to bring those um, populations together. And this is what it looks like uh, in, her, in her experiment. The other part to it is the legal and the regulatory reforms. So what I also find interesting is that these two rivers in India and this one river in New Zealand have been given personhood. So there is actually now a committee that looks after them when it comes to urban development decisions or development decisions in general. We've been writing about this in um, these two books, Citizens' Right to the Digital City, about citizens reclaiming their right to, um, to the city and to urban design. And this one about digital participation, um, which you can find on our QUT's uh, ePrints uh, library. If you're specifically interested in cohabitation, these two pieces pick up on this. Laura talks about decentering the human, and Nancy Smith about um, cohabitation specifically. So if you're interested, come and uh, see me. I can give you these, um, these references. Thanks so much. Thank you, Mark. We've got five minutes for questions. Um, does anyone have one to start us off? Uh, no, okay, well, I've got one for Marcus then. 
Marcus, you talked about embedding devices in the city to collect data. Mm. And I, mean, I love the idea of smart cities. You know, I try not to get caught up in the technology hype. I like to think that the smart cities are really there to serve people. Um, but I just wonder, like, do you see that there are any technological challenges in particular, um, say, with sticking millions of sensors around cities to collect the data that has been promised to us that will uh, enable us to generate these smart cities? Um, so you, I wonder if you could talk about that. Yeah. So. I think the, the crucial points that I mentioned here that relate to your question is, one, um, all of these devices require um, power, not just uh, the device to be powered, but they are transmitting um, data information, and then that goes somewhere, and that somewhere is kind of similarly considered to what we talked about yesterday, it's an externality. So it never really appears in anyone's um, equation, there's these data centers that just look like an ordinary building and you don't really see them um, um, as, as such and they consume a lot of power so that is one problem. The other problem is that the designers and manufacturers of those devices, they usually design them with plant obsolescence which means that it's difficult or even impossible to change batteries. They're actually designed to fail or designed to run out of battery after a couple of years um, and then um, you've got to remove and, and discard the entire sensor, the entire device. Um, chuck it, it goes to China or Accra as we just saw in, in Ghana um, and it's out of sight, out of our minds and I think that is another problem of the way that we install those devices to drive efficiency gains and we talk about sustainability in our cities but we don't really consider the entire ecosystem of where they come from and where they go. Yeah, uh, I agree but I hope there are some ways that we can overcome these challenges. Um, I'm sure you've got some <coughs> ideas in your head. Does anyone else have any questions? Probably a big question, but I was just wondering in terms of what do you see in the potential for Brisbane and what's kept you here so long? <laughs> um, Brisbane is, um, is both um, great as well as challenging. So Brisbane is, is super large. It's in fact the largest local government council because it's not kind of compartmentalized in different local governments. It's all one. Um, the challenge there is that it, it moves relatively slow. If, if we do work with smaller councils, they're usually more agile, they can make a decision and because it's a smaller hierarchy and a smaller geographic area, they are, they're quicker to implement things. So with Brisbane it takes a little bit longer, but um, then again you reach quite a large um, geographic area as well as population area. And um, in, in comparison to some of the other work that we do with our colleagues internationally in Europe or in, in the US, it's, it's still relatively easy to get to people in decision-making positions and talk to them about these issues. And they're quite receptible and, and accessible as well. So that's kind of what um, I find quite, um, quite attractive about working here in Brisbane. Um, I'm wondering if you can give us an example of a city somewhere in the world that's doing it really well. Um, in terms of the cohabitation piece, that is still relatively new thinking. I mean, it isn't new with regards to these animal bridges that you might have seen um, outside cities, but in terms of urban design that drives cohabitation, I think that is still a relatively new area. Um, in terms more generally about cities that I find quite progressive, it's probably, again, um, similar to what we heard yesterday about Scandinavian cities, Northern European cities that are high on OECD kinds of benchmarking lists. So I've been working closely with um, colleagues in Denmark uh, in Aarhus, for instance, um, they've designated entire areas of living laboratories where um, citizens come together with community groups, <coughs> to businesses, with the local government to trial new ideas. And it goes far beyond this, this notion of community consultation, where we just get into this room on a Sunday for an hour. Um, you all submit your little postcards and then you go off again. 
Um, so this, this ongoing and um, this commitment to continuity with regards to the engagement is, is something that is quite significant. Is there any way to transfer that or for us to harness that and bring that here, those systems? Um, yes, so we are in the process of doing so. There is an international community of practice of cities um, that are interested in that. It's called the um, OISC, the Open and Agile Smart Cities Network. And we've started to bring this to, to Australia. So there is now a number of cities that are signed up and we are looking for more cities to become members. So it's really a, um, an organization that drives um, those kinds of ideas and it's exclusive to, to cities. So the tech vendors are um, not allowed to become members and then go in there and just say, oh, you know, buy my product. Um, the membership is only open to city representatives. Thank you. OISC. Could I, could I just add a tiny thing to that? Um, sorry, um, what's her name? Uh, I just want to say something to that. Um, in the water industry, there's a lot of stuff happening where concrete channels are being deconstructed and natural, natural systems are being put in their place. If you look at what's happened in South Korea, they took down a six-lane freeway and put a natural creek system right in the middle of Seoul. And that brings the wildlife back. We did the same thing at a local government in Sydney. Not the same thing, but we, we reconstructed a concrete channel. So there's lots of things you can do in cities to to sort of bring wildlife back into the city. Another interesting thing. Sorry, just in the interest of time, we're going to have to yeah. move on to the next presentation. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Marcus. Thank you. Marcus. Thank you.